Growing up, I was really passionate about pretty much one thing, especially in junior high and high school, and that was basketball. Every day after school, I'm playing basketball in my dirt backyard. I'm practicing, I'm practicing, I'm practicing. That's where I spent most of my time. It wasn't on schoolwork, it wasn't on homework, it was on basketball. And in junior high and even high school, um, I told people, I'm going to be in the NBA someday. And here's the sad thing, I actually believed it. Like, I thought I was going to get to the NBA someday, and I was so passionate about this sport that it consumed my time, and it brought up emotions. My parents even threatened I would have to quit basketball if I couldn't stop getting so angry during games when things wouldn't go the right way or when we'd lose. And it just evoked all these emotions. I loved basketball, and it's something that I was incredibly passionate about. And as an adult, I still ask myself this question, what am I passionate about? What am I really passionate about, and what should I be more passionate about? And for you, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a hobby. Maybe it's a cause. Maybe it's an activity. What are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? And if you're not sure, if you're like, I'm really not sure, I haven't thought about that very much, let me just ask you this. What evokes emotion? What evokes emotion in your life? Because what we're passionate about will tend to evoke emotions in our life, whether that's um, joy and excitement, or whether it's frustration and anxiety or sadness or satisfaction. It evokes emotion. And here's kind of how this works. Passion tends to evoke emotion, and out of those emotions tends to come some sort of action. So what are you passionate about And what should you be more passionate about? God hasn't called you to be passive. He's called you to be passionate. God has not called you to be passive. He's called you to be passionate. But the big question is, what specifically should I be passionate about? And that's what we're going to see in this passage as we keep walking through John 2. And last week, if you were here with us, um, Jesus was at this huge citywide party, and he was turning water into wine. And the title of our sermon was Jesus Partied, and So Should You. And this week, we find Jesus at a temple, and he's making a whip out of cords, and he's turning over tables, and he's running people out of the temple. So a little bit different view on Jesus Tonight, And this passage, for some of us, it's going to make us feel really uncomfortable to think of Jesus this way. And the question is why, and it goes back to how do you view Jesus. We all have some idea about Jesus and who he is. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian and you just have questions, you have some idea of who Jesus is. And we tend to put Jesus into some sort of box. Or this is who Jesus is to me. This is how I see Jesus. And in Western culture, whether it's um, just from pressure from society or something that we tend to do, we can easily make Jesus into a very passive, okay with everything anybody does, turning the other way, permanent smile on my face, middle class white guy. And that is not who Jesus is. Earlier in John, we see John refer to Jesus as the lamb. But I think sometimes we forget that Revelation refers to him as a lion. And because we have wanted, I think, to make Jesus more palatable for everyone, we've declawed the lion, and we've tied a nice shiny bow around his neck, and that's just not who Jesus is, not in this passage today. Jesus gets angry. And so the question is, what evokes so much emotion and passion from Jesus? And he answers this really clearly 
in the passage that we're going to see. So we're going to pick up in verse 13. Jesus was at a party last week, and this week he's going to a different type of gathering. John 2, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, um, there's probably one in the pew. You can use your phone also, and then we'll have it um, up here so that you can follow along. In verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the Passover, this was an annual celebration that the Jews held celebrating their freedom from slavery in Egypt. And they would do this every single year in Jerusalem, and Jewish people would come from all over to celebrate God freeing them from slavery in Egypt. And so uh, it says that this was going on, and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So let's set the scene. When it's talking about the temple, this is actually talking about the outer part of the temple, and it's called the Court of the Gentiles. All right? It wasn't the inner part of the temple where the Jewish people, known as God's people, would come and worship. But it was the outer part of the temple where people would come. And here's, here's why this out of the part, outer part of the temple existed. It was so Gentiles, people who were not God's people, could still come and observe God's people worshiping. They could still come and watch. And so this whole court would be filled with Gentiles. It would, it would be you and I if we're not Jewish. We, we could have come and we could have watched in this court. And so uh, all kinds of people were coming from all over the place. Hurting people, curious people, confused people. We know from other Gospels that people who were crippled were coming. And the reason why they were coming to watch this worship take place is because they were asking, could this mean good news for me? Could God save me in the same way that he saved his own people? They wanted hope. And so they're coming and they're observing what God's people are doing as they worship. But here's what's happening. The Jewish people, they had to bring a proper sacrifice. So you see it mentioned here um, that there's animals and oxen and sheep and pigeons. They had to bring a proper sacrifice to this Passover. And they also had to bring a proper offering. And religious leaders saw this as an opportunity to make a quick buck. And so the religious leaders had people come in and set up all kinds of tables and areas, sell animals, is basically just a quickie mart for the Passover celebration. So as Jewish people got there, you could purchase an oxen, you could purchase a sheep, you could purchase a pigeon, and they had totally monopolized the market because these Jewish leaders would determine whether your sacrifice was good or not. So who do you think they're going to give a stamp of approval for on the sacrifice? The one that they sell you for a marked up price. And so this is happening. This is happening in the outer court, and they're filling this outer court, and here's what ends up happening. It keeps the Gentiles from being able to come in and observe. They can't get in because it's filled up with animals and money changers. And so in their mind, the religious leader's mind, they say, well, it's not a big deal. These are Gentiles. They're less than us. They're not God's people. It's not a big deal that they can't make it in. This isn't even for them. This is for us. So why does it matter? We can make a quick buck. And so Jesus walks up, and he sees this happening. And two things, two things that he sees. He sees his people being taken advantage of and misguided. And he sees people 
who he came to give his life for, being mistreated and abused and told that they were not good enough to hear about God's grace and his love. And they couldn't come in. They were being filled with this lie. And so they kept from hearing it, the good news. And as Jesus sees this happening, he is enraged. And it says this in verse 15. And so making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He's so enraged that he makes a whip out of cords. That's how mad Jesus is at everything that's happening. And he goes after the men in authority because they were being spiritually abusive. These were religious leaders that people should have been able to trust, that hurting people should have been able to go to to find healing. And instead, they're abusing their authority and they're abusing their role and they're taking the scripture and they're abusing it and people are being mistreated and taken advantage of. And God warns against this. He warns pastors against this. He warns shepherds against this in Ezekiel 34. Let me just read it real quick for you. He's got some strong words. He says, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer should the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. This is actually a big warning for Ryan and I. Because we've been called to actually lead you, guide you, point you toward Jesus. And that's a heavy weight. And that's a heavy calling. And that's what these religious leaders were called to do but they were misusing their authority, they were abusing it, they weren't pointing anybody toward Jesus, but they're actually pointing people away from Jesus. And we've been called to do this because ultimately, you, you are Jesus' sheep, church. Yeah, Ryan and I have been called to lead you and care for you, but even as shepherds, we're, we're shepherding sheep, right? Like, we're actually still sheep underneath Jesus. And so ultimately, you are Jesus' sheep who we've been called to care for, and that is a heavy calling. And we want to do everything that we can to care for you well and to point you toward Jesus and to love you well and to care for you, but that's not what these leaders were doing. And what's even worse than their actions of just setting up money changers and all of this that was going on in the court was how it painted a false picture of who God was to the watching world. Think about these Gentiles coming that came because they were searching for hope, because they were searching for healing, and they can't even make it in. Imagine what's going through their mind. Well, maybe I am hopeless. Maybe God really doesn't love me. Maybe I am less than these other people. Our actions, church, our actions matter. Our actions matter because it paints a picture for the watching world of who Jesus is. Our actions absolutely matter. Do you know what Jesus is passionate about? He's passionate about people. 
He's passionate about people hearing and experiencing the love and grace of his gospel. And do you know what makes Jesus angry? When he sees his people taken advantage of. And when he sees the people who he came to save filled with this lie that they are somehow not good enough for his love and his grace. That they're somehow less than. And that could not be further from the truth. But do we believe that? When we pass by the the homeless girl or gal up at Northgate, or when we pass by the guy that begs for change at Whole Foods, does the first thing that happens within, within us is a heart of compassion, or is it apathy and indifference? Does our heart break for the hurting and the marginalized? Or do we self-justify in our minds that they probably brought it on themselves and it has nothing to do with you or I? I do this and I hate it. I'm ashamed by it. That my first emotion when I see someone in need or I see someone hurting or I see someone who needs hope, that my first emotion would be anything other than compassion. But that I would be filled with indifference or apathy. Because our default, if you have experienced the grace of Jesus... Our default should not be apathy and indifference toward anybody. If you've experienced the grace of Jesus and received that grace, we should now be looking to give that grace to others. Because we've been given new passions, and so we're no longer just looking inwardly, but we're looking outwardly to offer hope to the hopeless, to give good news to those who need to hear it, wherever we may be and wherever they are. And there are so many people This very day, right underneath our nose, that are being filled up with this lie that there is no hope, that they are less than, that God couldn't love them, that their life has no worth. And it's happening right here in in Seattle. There will be upwards of 500 girls tonight between 11 and 17 on the street being prostituted. One in three teens who leave home will be coerced into prostitution within the first 48 hours of leaving home. There will be 800 homeless youth on the street tonight, and there will be thousands more homeless adults. Over 25,000 babies aren't with us in Washington right now because they were aborted last year. This isn't just a social issue. This is a Christian issue. It's a gospel issue. And I don't know what exactly this looks like for our church, but here's what I do know, is that we can't just turn a blind eye to the people around us the people in need. Whether it's in our neighborhood, whether it's up on Aurora, whether it's in the U District, that's not what God would have for us, church. Because those girls being prostituted, those are his kids. That homeless man is his man. The broken, those are his broken. And he doesn't look on them pointing a finger, but he looks on them wanting them to experience his grace and his love and his hope. We are all image bearers of the same God. The prostitute, an image bearer. Drunk, an image bearer. The orphan, an image bearer. The homeless man, an image bearer. The rich man, an image bearer. The poor man, an image bearer. The white, the black, we are all image bearers of the same God, and we are all in need of the same amount of grace. And this grace is equally available to all of us. No matter your gender, no matter your race, 
no matter your circumstance, no matter your income. Because we have been all created equally. And we are all valuable in God's eyes. And we are all precious in his sight. And if you feel like you don't have hope or you feel like maybe you're worthless, let me just tell you tonight, you matter. You matter. You matter to God. He loves you. He cares about you. And there's hope for you. You might say, but what if I'm, what if I'm one of the abusers? What if I've taken advantage of people? That grace is just as true for you. You might say, wait, that doesn't seem fair. I understand the innocent, I understand the marginalized being able to receive God's grace, but you're saying that the abuser, the one who takes advantage of people, can receive that same amount of grace? It doesn't seem fair. It's not fair, it's grace. It's getting what none of us deserve, and that's God's love and kindness and mercy. This makes me think about how welcoming are we as a church. I think about this often. How welcoming are we? Because there is no room in Jesus' church for finger pointing and judgment, but there is plenty of room for lending a hand, giving a hug, and offering hope and encouragement. And is that who we are as a church? I served at a church early on in ministry, and Laura and I served actually, and there was um, this pretty affluent neighborhood, and we served in this church, and then there were apartment complexes literally right down the road, about a quarter of a mile. In that apartment complex, 95% of the kids, they were living in a broken home with just single parents. And on Wednesday nights, we had a kids program, but we had like three kids coming. But we knew that there were hundreds of kids in this apartment complex, and so we started a program in the church. It's called Awana. Some of you have probably heard about it. And we sent buses in, and we picked up kids, and within three weeks, we went from three kids to 70 kids. Because these kids just wanted somewhere to go, and their parents wanted somewhere for them to go for a couple hours, right? Some of you are like, uh, totally. Uh, why don't we have a wanna? Um, <laughs> and, so, and so we saw these kids coming in. And here's, here's the deal. These, these kids were not white. They didn't look like the rest of the church. These kids were excited to be there. These kids weren't um, rounded on the edges. They were rough. They said things that maybe you shouldn't say in church. They did things maybe you shouldn't do in church. They had dirt on their feet. They muddied the carpets. But man, Jesus loved these kids. And, and I can't see him being any more glad than to see these kids come into a church and hear about the Bible and to hear about him and to hear about this love. But there was one lady in the church that did not like this. And because these kids didn't have parents who came with them, and because these kids used language they shouldn't use and they did things they, they shouldn't have done, she thought we should shut down the program and, and just leave the kids back where they were and they shouldn't be a part of the church. And it enraged me. It angered me to the point where after a conversation walking out of the office, I slammed the door and it came off the hinges. Because I was passionate about these kids and seeing them hear about the hope that Jesus offers. What are you passionate about? What should you be more passionate about? I'm not trying to guilt trip you, I'm trying to love you. And I wanna love our community with you. And when we see people taken advantage of, inside the church or outside, used and abused that should absolutely anger us because we're called to be passionate, not passive. Let's go on to verse 17 here. It says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal, it just means that his emotions were erupting. And emotions matter because they're an effect of our passions. And when we're controlled by, our, by the spirit, our emotional life ought to reflect that of Jesus. This wasn't an out-of-control rage. Jesus wasn't sinning. He was angry without sinning. It's okay to be angry about what Jesus is angry about. 
And Jesus gets angry when people are taken advantage of and used and abused and not able to hear his gospel. It says, zeal for your house. Sometimes this is incredibly misinterpreted, and we think about it as the building. And so a lot of people look at this passage, and they're like, see, we should only do X, Y, and Z at this building. And if we do otherwise, Jesus is angry. The only thing holy about this, about this building right now is that we're gathered here as the church, and God is with us. He doesn't hang out here and spend the night when we're gone. And so what Jesus was really angry about is not just this building being taken advantage of or this temple being taken advantage of, but people were coming to worship and people were coming to hear about the good news of God and they couldn't hear it and it enraged him because this should have been a safe place where they could feel loved, cared for, and hear about the grace of God and it wasn't happening. This is the only time in the whole Bible it says he was consumed. So you think Jesus is passionate about people? Absolutely. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? The Jewish leaders weren't super happy about being driven out of the temple. And look at how they respond to their sin. They say, basically, who are you to tell us that we shouldn't be doing these things? Who are you to tell us? And uh, I think we do this all the time, at least I do, with each other. A passionate follower of Jesus welcomes people speaking into their life because they want to grow. But a passive follower of Jesus often doesn't want to hear anybody speaking in because we're content where we are. They don't want to hear their sin. They, they uh, asked Jesus, what, how, who are you to tell us this? Jesus answered them in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? They didn't know what was going on here. This was blowing their mind. They're like, what's this guy talking about? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. So it clearly says here, he's speaking of his body. He's saying, you want a sign? Why should I be telling you this? Because I am the Messiah. I am the one who's come. And John tells us this when he says, uh, it's really interesting. It, It kind of looks weird here, and then I'm like, okay, it makes sense. Uh, then the disciples remembered when he was raised from the body, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. John's like, oh yeah, and Jesus, um, he's gonna go to the grave and then he's gonna be raised from the dead and it's awesome. Like, spoiler alert. He's like, I know I'm only in chapter two, but here's some really good news and I just can't keep it in. His disciples remembered this when he was raised from the dead. Here's some great news for you early on. A little bit of a spoiler, but a good one. On this day at the temple, Jesus fashions a whip, and he stands in between those who would seek to do harm, take advantage, oppress, and marginalize, and his people, and those who are being taken advantage of and marginalized as an advocate. And on this day, he takes the whip, and he runs the wicked out of the temple, and he evoked so much anger, and he knew he would do this from the Jews and the Romans who would now seek to take his life. And although on this day he had a whip and he used a whip to run out the wicked, on the last day he wouldn't hold a whip, but a whip would be used on him to run out sin as he would go to the cross. The sin of the world, the sin of the wicked, the sin of you and I. And he would take all of that sin upon himself, the sin of the broken, the sin of the downtrodden, the sin of the outcast, the sin of the rich, And he would give his life as a sacrifice, as we'll talk about next week on Easter for the world. 
and he would overcome sin and death. And as John tells us, he would rise from the grave and offer new life. It doesn't tell us in John what happens next, but because we have other gospels in Matthew, it shows us, and it's absolutely beautiful. As Jesus clears out this temple, Matthew tells us, and the blind and the lame came into the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of God, they were disturbed. This grace is available to everyone. Jesus welcomes everyone in. There is no longer a differentiation between a Jew and a Gentile. We all have the same opportunity to receive the grace of Jesus, the love of Jesus. It doesn't matter your race, your gender, your background, your past, your income, whatever it may be. We are all equally in need of the same amount of grace and it's equally available to every single one of us. There are no tears. There are no levels of Christianity. The blood that poured out of Jesus on the cross, if we receive his grace and his love, it covers us all the same and it covers us fully. It's a love with no bias. I can't help but read this part about the kids. You see this here? And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. I can't help but think about children that have uh, been aborted or children that have been uh, killed during sex trafficking or abuse. That they are now with Jesus because he's their advocate. And they're worshiping him and he loves them so much. And as the church He has called us not to practice false religion, not to take advantage of people, not to use and abuse, but to practice true religion. Caring for the orphans and widows and the downtrodden and the outcast and those who the world would say are unlovable, that we would love them because Jesus is passionate about people. And no matter who it is, Jesus wants us to be passionate about them hearing and experiencing his love and his grace. So where do we go from here? I walked by a sign by my house the other day and it said, do what you can where you can. And it was from uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And so as as life groups, what does this look like for, for us? What does it look like for us to love one another really well in the church body? For us to care for one another, not mistreat one another, not use one another, but point one another to Jesus? What does it look for us to look at opportunities, just like Jason shared before, maybe opportunities in the community to serve? And we don't just serve to serve, just so you know that. Uh, That service that their life group is doing, that gives them an opportunity to rub shoulders with kids who need to hear about the hope of Jesus, and Lord willing, it provides them opportunities to share that great hope. And so maybe it looks like us looking for opportunities in our area or with neighbors, who can we serve? As individuals, maybe it's your sphere of influence and maybe it's just asking God tonight. Maybe it's being really honest. Maybe it's repenting of some things. I've been really passive when it comes to people. I've pointed fingers, I've judged, and really, God, I need you to do a work within my heart so that I would be more passionate about people, all people, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from, no matter what they look like, no matter how they smell, that I would be passionate about them. So God, would you align my heart with your heart? 
would you allow me to be angry about the things that you're angry about and not care as much about the things that you really don't care about? And as a church, what does it look like for this to be a safe place? You've heard Ryan and I say, we want to be a safe place. And some of you have been like, what are you talking about? Like, there's no danger here. There can be. There can be danger to the broken. Will this be a safe place where anybody can walk through the doors of this building or the doors of your life group, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they look like, and they're welcomed in, and they're shown love, and they see that they matter, there's just hope for them, and they hear about the love and grace of Jesus. Church, it's critical that we're that type of place. It's critical that we're a safe place where anyone can come in and hear about this gospel, this beautiful gospel. So you may be saying, well, it sounds like we need to start 20 different outreach ministries. And that's not what I'm saying. But I think that we should absolutely, individually, in life groups, as a church, look for areas where we can serve and support one another in our hurts and in our brokenness and in our pain and others. This is why I love groups and foundations like Rest because they're doing this. This is why I love this new organization called Stolen Youth, started by some moms who really want to see child sex trafficking stopped. And Ryan and I, we're, we're looking into these things because we want to look at opportunities that we can have to support this good that's already happening, that's going on, maybe with volunteers, maybe financially, but to show the love and grace of Jesus to all people all around our community. I love the, the big brothers and big sisters reaching out and serving kids who maybe their parents are incarcerated or they just, they've been told that they, that they don't matter and they really do and, and Jesus loves them and they're his kids, but it starts here. It starts here in our church that we would love everyone the same, that we would love and respect and show dignity to everyone no matter what, no matter where they come from because we're all in need of the same amount of grace from the same God. And imagine what impact this could make in our community if we lived this out as a church. The lives that could be changed, the hope that could be given, all because of the love and grace of Jesus that he's poured into us that we're now pouring out into our community. God hasn't called you to be passive. He's called you to be passionate. And he's called us to be passionate about people. All people. That we would be so passionate about them hearing and experiencing the love and grace of Jesus. And that we would bring that wherever we may be. And we can only do that because of the love and grace that he has shown us. Jesus, thank you for your love for us. And thank you for your grace Thank you for your goodness. Jesus, I, I pray that you would give us the same desires that you have, that you would show us as a church what you want us to, to do when it comes to this. There's, there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of need in all different areas of all different types of people's lives, whether it's in our neighborhoods, whether it's in our community. Jesus, I pray that you would stir in our hearts uh, a passion for people, the same passion that you have for us. That you would love us so much that you would not look to be self-seeking, but you would look to be selfless, and you would take on flesh, and you would come, and you would live among us, the wicked, the dirty, the broken, those who would seek to kill you and take you to a cross, and take your life, but you would look upon us and you would ask while you're dying with your dying breath, Father, forgive them. 
Jesus, may we not be okay or indifferent or apathetic when we see anyone taken advantage of. May we not take advantage of one another, and may we stand up for those who are taken advantage of outside of our body. Jesus, we thank you for your word, even though it's a hard word. And my deepest prayer is that we wouldn't ball up or tense up or try to push this away, but we would allow ourselves to be opened up so that you can continue to transform our hearts to be more like yours. That we wouldn't be a church or a people that give excuses, but that lend a hand, to give a hug, that offer hope. And Jesus, I pray for any individual in here right now who maybe they came in and they have questions about who you are. Maybe they came in and they thought that they weren't lovable, that there's too much pain in their past, there's too much hurt in their past, there's too many things they've done in their past, and there's no way that you could love them or your grace could be good enough for them. I pray that you would erase that lie from their heart right now. And I pray that they would see how much you love them, how much you are pursuing them. And I pray that they would surrender their life, give you their sin, give you their imperfections, give you their past, and receive your grace, that you would be the Lord of their life. Jesus, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for pursuing us. I pray these things in your name. Amen.